Public CEO Report is a podcast that provides insights about the public sector and public policy for the benefit of decision makers and leaders powering our communities. I'm your host, writer Todd Smith, and today we're joined by Dr. Ken Miller, Director of the Rose Institute of State and Local Government and the Don H. and Odessa Rose Professor of State and Local Government. Dr. Miller, welcome to the Public CEO Report. Ryder, it's a pleasure to be here and chat with you today. Awesome. Well, so full disclosure, Ken, you and I are personal friends uh, and professional acquaintances as well. Uh, I have the distinct honor to be chairman of the board of governors for the Rose Institute of State and Local Government. It's an institute um, I also had the pleasure of working at when I was a college student in the 90s. So the Rose is near and dear to my heart. So I guess you could say this is a uh, friendly territory interview we're going to have a conversation about today, but something that that I'm certainly familiar with, more familiar with this than than others. Um, but uh, I really appreciate your time and expertise in coming here today to share it with me and our audience here at Public CEO. I think the first thing I'd love to know is, I mean, you're a professor of state and local government, which is kind of a rare title, perhaps the only such person that has that title at the Claremont Colleges out in Claremont, California, east of Los Angeles. Uh, how did you end up in this world of local government? Okay, uh, happy to address that. And before I do, I just want to thank you again, Ryder, for inviting me on today and also for all the work you do as the chair of our board, the Rose Institute. Uh, it's really a, a privilege and a pleasure to work with you. So um, my background, so I, I was an undergraduate in Claremont and then went on to law school, uh, decided that I didn't want to make a full uh, career in the practice of law and decided that uh, academia was the kind of place that I would, was most suited for. Got my PhD at Berkeley and, and worked there at the Institute of Governmental Studies at Berkeley uh, and worked with a, a professor named Bruce Kane, who uh, was at the time the leading expert in California politics at, at an academic level. And so he was, in a, in a way, a mentor for me. Um, I'd also worked uh, briefly in the, in the California legislature before I, w I went to graduate school. And uh, so I had experience in the legislature working on state and local um, uh, policy issues in California. And so that was a natural attraction to me, was to uh, combine my academic career with my interest in, in state and local policy. Uh, so I finished up at Berkeley, got this job at Claremont McKenna College, which has, uh, as you mentioned, this remarkable research institute, the Rose Institute of State and Local Government. And so it was a natural fit for me as someone interested in these issues uh, to attach myself to the Rose Institute. And so I've been on the staff here for about a dozen years and uh, recently in the last two years became the director of the institute. And what is the rose, right? I mean, what when, when we uh, we'll refer to it as the rose for the duration of this conversation, but uh, describe it in terms of like structure and uh, founding and purpose, and just just to provide some context because some of the audience um, they're familiar with the rose. They were familiar with some of the studies, fiscal studies that were done in the '90s that got a lot of play and notoriety, and frankly caused some consternation from some folks in local government, certainly. Uh, and then the rose had also been during that same time. Um, tight on kind of fiscal issues in Orange County that presaged the uh, bankruptcy of Orange County. Uh, and then, you know, has continued doing some work. So kind of give me give me the high level overview of the Rose operationally and historically. Yeah. So in, in terms of history, this year, 2023, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Rose Institute. 
So the, the Institute was founded at Claremont McKenna College in uh, 1973. Uh, the, the founding director, Alan Heslop, and the president at the time, Jack Stark, had this common vision uh, that uh, Claremont McKenna could become uh, a center for the study of state and local government. And they had a supporter in a woman named Edessa Rose, and uh, she was uh, the first female trustee of Claremont McKenna College. She was an attorney and had a, a strong interest in uh, politics and policy, but she was also really focused on uh, the need for better analysis of policy at the state and local level. And so that combination sort of came together in the early 1970s and the Institute was founded. Uh, it has been um, an important player, I would say, in California uh, politics and policy, sort of outsized influence from a small liberal arts college in Eastern LA County. It has had a uh, big important influence on issues including redistricting uh, back in the 1970s and 80s um, and beyond, redistricting reform with the formation of a of the Independent Redistricting Commission. Um, as you mentioned, fiscal analysis for local governments that has become increasingly important uh, function of the Rose Institute. Um, and so we continue to do that kind of work, combination of publicly uh, uh, disseminated research as well as uh, individual consulting for uh, local governments um, as well. And so it's, we have a rich mix of projects. Um, the other thing in terms of structure, we have an outstanding board of governors, uh, which you chair. Uh, so we have, it's about 20 members of the board and includes um, folks that are city managers, uh, elected officials, as well as attorneys and um, business leaders. So it's, it's, it's a really dynamic and, and important um, part of our ecosystem. Uh, big supporters of the Institute. We have a group of faculty at, at Claremont McKenna College who are affiliated with the Institute. So uh, that's an important part of what we do. We have an, uh, a professional staff at the Institute and then we hire uh, students. And that is what really makes us distinctive, I think, among research institutes is that much of the work is actually done by undergraduate students at uh, the Claremont Colleges. Um, we hire students either in their first or second year of college, and they stay on um, our staff for all four years of college. Uh, and they become uh, really well-trained in these issues of state and local uh, government, public, uh, public policy and politics, and they do a lot of the research. So we are supervising a, a large team, about 30 uh, undergraduate students, who do a lot of the work of, of our organization. So it's we have an educational mission. Uh, we have a public policy uh, mission that's trying to <clears throat> come up with actionable public policy recommendations for uh, governments in California, especially, and a, a broader uh, public education mission as well. That's a great summary. And I, I guess I would be remiss not to at least try to plug for local government leaders in California in particular, which is where I spend most of my time in my other day job at Terpepe Smith. Uh, you know, pursuing Rose students, undergraduate employees uh, to come do summer internships at your uh, government organizations is probably a really good idea because these are some very smart uh, young people with a lot of enthusiasm and some dynamic thinking and hungry to learn. Uh, and if they've gotten involved in the Rose, it probably indicates some level of interest in local government stuff that should be of interest to the broader local government community here in California. I'll just interject uh, further build on that pitch. Uh, it's very rare for an undergraduate to have the capacity that our students have and the, the depth of understanding of how local governments 
actually work. Um, our research projects require them to understand the structure of local government, how they're financed, uh, the, the kind of public policy issues that they're wrestling with. And so uh, graduating as a senior uh, from uh, Claremont McKenna, and especially as a Rose Institute student, they're really well-equipped, much more so than any other undergraduate institution that I'm aware of. Agreed. But, you know, we, we both love the Rose. We might be blinded by our love, but I think that's probably, <laughs> a, I think anybody from the outside should know that too. I can actually put my money where my mouth is on that too. I've hired uh, former Rose alumni that have come to work for me at the firm, and uh, they've been great, great members of our team at Trebepi Smith. So, um, all right, <clears throat> big picture now. Next question, uh, kind of what's working well in state and local government in California from your perspective? What do you see going on out there that you're like, you know, this is a positive thing that's, that seems to be going well and uh, worthy of at least saying something good about because, you know, oftentimes we focus on the bad stuff, but let's talk about something good. Yeah, I mean, we can... As, I, as you say, we can look at problems in California, but I think if you just step back at even a half step, you have to admire in many ways uh, the professionalization and professionalism of our local governments. Um, and I think that goes all the way back to the, the early 20th century and the professionalization of uh, municipal governments in California. And that's just part of our uh, the legacy that we inherit from a century and more ago. Uh, the city manager form of government, uh, the nonpartisan nature of our governments is is just better than many other parts of the of the country that are more machine driven or uh, spoil system that kind of thing. I I, I just admire uh, the the way in which the professionalism of our local governments operate, and so I would say that's a real strength in California. Yeah, and I certainly would concur in that observation when I see the various association groups I work with that are really focused on bringing up, um, historically anyways, have been particularly focused on bringing up people who are good at the craft of governance and navigating the complexities of California law, which is certainly one of the more complex states to deal with at a, as a, if you're a city or local government agency and you're navigating both federal and state regulations. It's And then the other various layers of special districts and um, area government overlays like a SCAG, uh, it's complex. And uh, whether it's MMASC or MMANC or the California City Management Foundation or the League of California Cities, um, just great staff that you see uh, kind of coming through that process, trying to learn the craft of implementing public policy that's either being driven by city councils or, uh, you know, sometimes uh, being dictated by Sacramento, trying to push down on cities to implement some policies. That's a that's a good, I appreciate that perspective. Um, uh, maybe what are some observations? Um, actually, I'll do a quick bridging one. Uh, if you were to look, Ken, at maybe you know your perspective on California public policy solutions, one of my favorite questions to ask folks is like, what is the big thing that's been solved by California in the last 20 or 30 years? Um, and I have one that I always go to, uh, but this is one of my favorite questions to ask policy people. And by this, I mean, you know, I'd say the UC system was a big policy win, uh, you know, many decades ago, or the state water project was a big policy infrastructure win for California. Do you have any that come to your mind that's been a, a policy win at a state or local government level in California that, um, that you have some thoughts on? Yeah, so I'll, I'll um, speak from personal experience. And uh, so I grew up in Southern California. Uh, grew up in Whittier. I went to school in Claremont as an undergraduate uh, back in the 1980s. So I go far enough back to remember a time where Claremont, where many of your um, 
viewers and listeners will know is in the uh, sort of the edge of the Inland Empire um, on the foothills of the uh, sort of conjunction of the San Gabriel and San Bernardino Mountains. So it's part of the basin here. And when I went to when I went to college in Claremont, it was uh, rare actually to be able to see Mount Baldy, which is just right <laughs> above uh, the city of Claremont, right, and, and the and the San Gabriel and San Bernardino Mountains. It was uh, when I was younger in elementary and high school, we had smog alerts, uh, and I remember actually feeling uh, physical pain, breathing as as a young person. Um, and so that's not true today, right? Uh, yep. You know, as I'm looking out my window here, I, I mean, this is March, and so uh, it's maybe maybe more explainable in terms of uh, the season. But I have a very clear view of the mountains. But that's also true most of the year, right? And I don't experience sort of uh, uh, discomfort, just breathing, or especially when I'm doing athletic activities, right? That's a big win. That's a big public policy win. I know there are trade-offs that have gone along with improving air quality in California generally and across the United States. There's costs to uh, industry and it's been expensive and all of that. But I would say uh, I and probably most people in California would would take those trade-offs. That it is the quality of life, especially in inland regions in Southern California, is a better today because of the better air quality. And that was the result really of public policy and industry sort of being able to uh, modernize a, lo a lot of technology and make it cleaner, right? So there's been uh, a lot of work done on the private sector end as well, uh, but public policy drove a lot of that, especially at the, at the early stages. Yeah, I uh, I agree. That's actually the one I always can think of when I try to think what we've solved in the last 20 or 30 years for the billions and billions, well, trillions probably of dollars that have been spent. Um, that has a, you know, organization statewide, uh, and certainly, you know, region-wide uh, major public policy impact that literally affects 100% of the population too. Um, similar to a state water project affecting 100% of the water drinkers in Southern California, which is everybody in Southern California, right? right. Um, so yes, well noted. And I, I would challenge, I like to challenge my audience to consider what else can you put on that list of policy wins that have uh, positively impacted the lives of Californians. Um, and I don't say that to be derisive or uh, negative. I just like I, I want to come up with a list. I want to I want to try to identify wins that uh, state or local government has delivered in California. So having said that, you know, not everything's coming up roses, right? What any comments, observations on areas of challenge uh, from your academic studies or from your policy perspective that um, you know are areas that need attention or that you think are are particularly notable? Okay, so maybe this is the flip side of my last answer that California has been very committed to environmental protection. Uh, it's also committed to a lot of other progressive goals like uh, labor regulation, uh, employment uh, re regulation, and such. And so, individually, you might say oh, these are these are worthwhile objectives. Uh, collectively, however, they've made California uh, an exorbitantly expensive place to to live and to do business, right? That's the biggest, to my mind, the biggest public policy challenge facing California is how to pursue uh, these progressive goals that there's a lot of consensus on among uh, voters and especially policymakers in California, while also making the place at least, you know, somewhat competitive uh, in terms of affordability, in terms of buying a home, starting a family, uh, running a business. And I don't think we've struck that balance uh, correctly at this point. It's uh, California is too expensive 
And I think that there are some interventions that could make it uh, less so. And also maybe even more sort of like an attitude shift where policymakers in California are um, more explicitly considering the cost implications of the policies that they're um, pursuing, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, because if, if that's not done, if there's not sort of sustainability in terms of affordability, as well as sustainability in terms of the environment and other things, then uh, the state will become essentially a place where wealthy people who can pay a premium to live here uh, will continue to be able to live here, but middle class and working class people will get priced out. Maybe not this generation, but the next generation, their kids will say, you know, I just can't afford to buy a house to live here. Uh, I can't start a business here, given all of the costs and regulations and taxes and such. And so I'm going to exit for Arizona or Texas or um, Tennessee or some other place. And that's just a huge loss to the state to, to lose that sort of middle class uh, that is, you know, the, the anchor for the social structure of the, of the state and just make it a place where you either need to be subsidized by the government or you can pay a premium in order to live here. Right. Yeah. Um, it, the Rose has done some work on this, if I recall correctly, with some cost of doing business work and has a history of doing the Cosmont cost of doing business studies, some of which have recently evolved. And I think there's been some uh, new research you guys have done on that. Can you talk about that a little bit? I assume that's partly underpinning some of your observations. Yes, absolutely. So uh, for more than two decades, this is a long time, right? The, the Rose Institute has worked with Larry Cosmont and the Cosmont companies and in partnership uh, to produce uh, a cost of doing business survey. And so it's had various iterations over time, but the basic uh, mission of the project is to uh, do an assessment of the cost of doing business in local jurisdictions in California and then in comparison uh, locations in other states. And so that would be looking at things like local sales tax, uh, building fees, uh, permitting fees, um, those types of things, uh, utility taxes and such. And you, we create a composite for uh, each jurisdiction and we kind of rank them uh, on, the, on the basis of cost factors. And so uh, what that does is it informs local governments where they sort of uh, uh, rate in comparison to the other jurisdictions in um, California and elsewhere on cost factors. And it also gives information to businesses about what places, you know, how they're the jurisdictions where they are located uh, compare. In terms of like new iterations of that, we're, we're doing um, more work actually looking at business uh, and population migration out of California. Mm -hmm. Something that is not new, really, but it's, it's become more acute uh, in the past five years or so with the pandemic, especially, but also in general, that there's been net, um, mig net um, out migration of people from California uh, that really started in the 1990s. Prior to the 1990s, California was a magnet, really, of people from around the country, uh, especially in the post-war period, uh, where, where uh, middle-income people uh, found opportunity in California. Uh, from the 1990s forward, more people have been leaving California than coming into the state from other states, uh, and that's accelerating uh, so that we actually have population loss in California. That's remarkable. A place as beautiful, as amazing as we all know it to be is losing people to other places. That's got to be the product of cost or public policy or something, right? That's, that's driving people away. Yeah, and I think one thing to clarify in that too is um, 
you'd hear that you'd say well then we should have been losing population since the 90s and the answer is well no we weren't losing population because while we were within america net net um losing population to other states relative to the population within america that was coming into california uh we were um simultaneously uh bringing in larger immigration uh, immigrant population so landing on the shores of california or coming across borders into california or flying into into california uh, and making California their home. So the percentage of foreign-born Californians uh, has increased over that period of time to kind of offset the outflow of population from California into other states. At least that's my observation. You can tell me if I'm wrong on this. Uh, and then I think only in the last maybe five years or seven years have we really seen that even that number is even with the immigration of out of country population coming first generation to America, um, we're now actually seeing that population decline. Uh, with the last couple of years, we've seen a population, I, know, I feel like it was like a couple hundred thousand people a year that we've lost uh, in the state of California as an aggregate number. Is that, do I roughly have that right? That's roughly, roughly right. So that the, the net migration uh, between states, so into California from other states, out of California to other states has been negative since the 90s, right? Um, but it was masked by two other factors. One is natural increase as more births than deaths, right? Mm. Uh, which still is the case, but it's 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 um, not as big as it used to be. And then also the decrease in international uh, immigration into California, which was very big in the 80s and 90s, uh, and it's it's slowed down uh, in recent years. So that's why we're actually having a net decrease in population. Um, interestingly, I'll just add this. Uh, I did some work on this like more than a decade ago, working uh, with some data from the um, state demographers at the Department of Finance in Sacramento. And they had done projections of what California's population would look like in, uh, sort of into the mid 21st century. And they were expecting California's population to increase to like 60 million by 2060, something like that. Uh, and they showed us well over 45 million by this point. Instead, what happened is that that, that sharp increase that we saw in the 80s and 90s through immigration and other things has just totally flattened out that we have, um, we were getting close to 40 million and instead we've we've hit that plateau and we're declining. We're down close to 39 million. And so now we look more like a state like New York, which has had a flat population for the last half century uh, it hasn't been growing in terms of population. And we don't look at all like Texas or Florida. We used to back in the 1950s and 60s. California was a fast growing state. Now we're a flattened out state in terms of population. That has big implications for things like school enrollments, for um, uh, thinking about the mix and, and the demographic mix in terms of older people, younger, younger people. Uh, California will become an older state over time as we have uh, you know, a declining population. Yeah. Yeah. I've been curious about the numbers, too, in terms of absolute decline in population in California and trying to reconcile that with um, housing policies in the state uh, about our housing shortage or housing crisis. And that's not me saying there isn't one. Um, I'm. It's more like the underlying demand curve for housing theoretically should be reducing with the reduction in the population in the state of California. Now, that could be being offset by 18 year olds turning you know, moving out and wanting to move into apartments. So the number of people actually trying to occupy units is uh, increasing and we're reducing the per unit occupancy rate, right? There's a fewer number of people per housing unit. Um, 
<clears throat> or it's people buying second homes and just having empty second, you know, empty property sitting there that's not being used. And we've certainly seen some evidence of that throughout the West Coast of particularly um, international money parking capital in America and in real estate to try to shield it from uh, government uh, or to at least diversify their asset holdings outside of the countries that the money is coming from. Uh, but it is kind of a, I'm not sure if you have thoughts on that, but I find a little bit of an interesting policy conundrum that the underlying population is decreasing if the demand for housing doesn't seem to be going, reducing uh, in a correlating way. No, it's fascinating. And I, I'd, I'd love to get like a, a clearer picture of that, but Absolutely, you would expect with a declining population that would alleviate pressure on the demand side for housing and should um, assist with prices. But we're not seeing that. We're seeing uh, prices staying high and shortages in housing. So I, I do think it's reduced number of uh, people per housing unit, and then also the, the second uh, home, uh, as you as you mentioned. So uh, we're in a situation. This is sort of. Uh, interesting situation with declining population, but increasing shortage of housing. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's also probably an element in there within that second home kind of cohort. There's probably an element of the Airbnb effect there too, of homes just getting flipped into uh, income generating properties uh, for short-term rentals. That also has had an impact as well. It's sure. kind of changed up the the mix. Uh, so obviously cost of living in California, we just now started touching, touching on housing uh, shortages. Other policy areas that the Rose is exploring or studying that you'd um, that you want to talk about, or that that are that would be of interest, or areas that that uh, the Rose is exploring. Yeah. So I would I would just say on the on the housing front, uh, I I think that public policy in California, including CEQA and zoning and regulation and such, has contributed to the high cost of housing. And now Sacramento is seeking to. Uh, counteract some of that with some new mandates on local governments in terms of uh, inclusionary um, housing, um, uh, increased density requirements, and all those kinds of things. That's creating a very interesting conflict between uh, the state level and local governments, which uh, traditionally have resisted imposition of mandates from Sacramento on these types of issues and wanted to maintain local control. I'll just uh, pitch uh, an interesting conference we've got at the Rose Institute uh, March 24th, it's a Friday, just in a, in a couple of weeks' time. Former Governor Gray Davis is going to be coming to campus and leading a discussion of uh, on, on this topic of um, the conflict between the state and local governments over housing policy. And mm -hmm. we've got um, a couple of uh, city managers, uh, including one of our board members, Scott Ochoa, will be part of the panel. Uh, we've got um, other important um Public officials, Buffy Wicks from Berkeley, who's uh, on the state side, sort of involved in uh, policy issues with part of it as well. So it's going to be um, a city council member from Huntington Beach as well. So we've got like an interesting mix of people um, engaged in this discussion. And we've got students who are doing uh, active research projects looking at uh, these these mandates and how they're playing out at the local level. Mm. Uh, well, I will just say, given all the work that we do with city governments and a couple of engagements we have right now that are hitting right on this exact point, there's a lot of tension between the state uh, and cities on these issues. HCD, um, the state agency, is uh, pounding on cities right now to get their housing elements approved or reviewing them and uh, kind of issuing decrees about their compliance status or not. Um, and 
I think there's residents that are kind of waking up to these state housing mandates and their implications for land use control that uh, is causing a bit of a ripple effect in a lot of communities where people were pretty quiet about things and not realizing what the implication was. So, um, and then in California, we've already, Southern California, we've already seen, and now we're starting to see up in Northern California a bit, this uh, triggering element, which is this builder's remedy clause, which uh, are, it's disputed exactly what it means, but some interpretation of it is that uh, if you fail to have a compliant HCD approved housing element, uh, kind of like it's no holds barred in terms of building uh, whatever you want on whatever property you want, um, as long as it includes some low income housing component to it to kind of enable uh, that development. Um, and that was kind of a, a stick that was created in some of the legislation to prevent that. So we're just seeing some very interesting, um, and there's a lot of cities that are hunting around looking at policy solutions and issues and challenges, trying to understand what it takes to implement that, what that infrastructure um, consideration is for increased sewer pipes and increased water pipes and increased demand. If you start putting density in places where it was never anticipated, what it means for parking on the streets and things like that. Like these are all fundamental questions that where the rubber meets the road of implementing these housing policy changes um, has significant impacts for the overall quality of life experience for the people who are currently living in those cities and in those communities. Absolutely. And I, I think you're you're highlighting some of the complexity of this issue. I, it has does have ripple effects through um, local governments at, at many levels. And so uh, this to, to, to us, this is kind of within our su sweet spot. There's like data out there that can be analyzed. We have some distance, some objectivity, able to sort of apply some analysis to these issues. And it, you know, it's such a big project. We have to sort of, uh, you know, choose where best to uh, to apply analysis. But we're we're in the process of doing that. We do think it's going to be uh, an issue facing local governments for the next uh, probably decade, uh, and it's not going to go away. This is one of the the toughest challenges for the state. Uh, unless the unless we drop another four or five million people off the population rolls right. here in the state and of California, might actually get some some real effect on the <laughs> demand side, right? Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So, uh, and then, um, I know, I, I, I guess I'm not going to let this one go by because this public CEO is about executives leading public agencies and government. Yes. And, um, I, uh, I know for a fact that you're involved with a joint study with the California city management foundation that I would love for you to just briefly highlight. I'd kind of, uh, you know, I've heard some people refer to it as a survey research on it. I, I'd kind of view it more as a census of the profession, but why don't you describe what it is? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's a little combination of both, right? So the, 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 the concept is that there are 480 or so uh, city managers in California uh, in, in the ballpark there. And our goal is to uh, create a, a census or a profile of, of the profession, um, understanding, I mean, this is not well studied, right? Who, uh, who are the people who fill these critical roles in local government in California? I mentioned at, at the outset of our conversation that that was part of the progressive vision is that professionalizing local governments, you would sort of center on a, on a city manager or city administrator, as opposed to having uh, political people um, uh, sort of running the show. Um, mm -hmm. And so you depoliticize. And so the city manager, city administrator, as your uh, listeners will know, is is a critical function. And we try to, part of what we're doing is explaining this to our students. This is like, it's like a CEO, public CEO. It really is a CEO of a, of a major organization, right? In the public sector, these are complex organizations and this, the CEO, the city manager, administrator has a, a critically important role. So we are interested in learning more about 
what types of people fill these roles, right? What is their ed educational background, some of their demographic information, uh, their their work experience before they uh, uh, take on the city manager position? Were they city managers in, in other jurisdictions and move over, or did they sort of work their way up through the jurisdiction where they are? And, and just creating the census or profile of the profession. We do have an, an additional element in the project where we're asking city managers to um, share their perspective on what are some of the most important issues facing their city. And so that's the the survey component mm -hmm. uh, of the project. But I would say that'll be interesting to see uh, sort of a, that, that survey component. But to me, the, the biggest value of this is just kind of uh, a profile of who uh, who is filling these critical positions in local government in California. Yeah, agreed. Uh, you know, it all started with a um, uh, a question that always comes up, which is how long was the average tenure of a city manager in California? It's a volatile position subject to a majority vote of the city council. And um, and in the professional circles I, I walk in, uh, it was always it's a question I hear asked all the time. And I think part of the part of the goal is to ultimately get to an answer around that of like, what is the average? How long currently is the average tenure of a city manager in the seat that they're sitting in now? And uh, you know, I think part of the hope is that this becomes a annual check-in, and we see that data evolve and change as the profession evolves and changes too. Um, I know that uh, for for me in our division at Tripp Smith called TS Talent Solutions, uh, we were excited to collaborate with the California City Management Foundation to help underwrite um, that study. And then I also would be remiss to not also acknowledge the California Joint Powers Insurance Authority. Uh, an organization that's definitely committed to best practices within the profession, kind of in risk mitigation, uh, for also being a joint um, co-underwriter of the project. So, it's uh, I'm glad that the Rose was able to partner with the California City Management Foundation on that effort. I look forward to the. Do we have any sense of timing on that, or has that yeah, been so are we public on that? I'm not sure say, what the deal is. Yeah, I would I would I would also say to your uh, listeners and viewers here that. Uh, this, this project is in process right now. Uh, the students are in, in the process of contacting local governments to try to get this uh, this basic information. And so if, if any of you are in this position uh, and have been contacted, we, uh, we, we've already received many responses, but if you haven't yet responded, get back to us. And uh, it, it takes only a couple of minutes to fill out this survey. We'll, we'll quit knocking down your door if you uh, get back to us, that'd be great. Yes, I, I would. I yeah. I think for the sake of the profession, your participation is helpful. And importantly, this is not intended as some gotcha journalism, uh, you know, um, in narrative that we're that's trying to be built up here. This is a genuine, uh, you know, led by the California City Management Foundation, a genuine exploration of the profession to better understand the very people that help do the work that happens in local government. So, so yeah, just to follow up on your question, this is a big data gathering operation. We're we're hoping to do it in as short a timeline as possible, meaning this spring, because as you mentioned, there is turnover in these positions. So we really want to get a snapshot of a, of a given point in time, and then we can come back uh, in the future and you know see changes over time. But we need to be able to get the information uh, in, a, in a short time window. And we would hope that this report would come out sometime uh, in the maybe second or third quarter of this year. Okay, awesome. Well, that's a lot of studying. Ken, you are also a professor, so uh, you've written some books. Tell, tell, tell me, uh, prove to me how brilliant you are. Tell me about these amazing <laughs> books you've written. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about a couple of them. Uh, the, the first one grew out of my uh, work in graduate school as a, as a grad student. Um, I got, I'm, as I mentioned, I have a, a background in law, and 
um, became interested in the California initiative process uh, and also the intersection between the initiative process and the court system and the extent to which ballot initiatives get approved, statewide ballot initiatives get approved in California and other states. And then oftentimes they get challenged after the election and not infrequently they get struck down. So that was like the basic issue that I was um, focusing on in the book is called direct democracy in the courts. And uh, the in order to sort of make that book happen, I created a database which is housed at the Rose Institute, which has all ballot initiatives approved uh, in the United States, going back to the uh, origin of the initiative process in the first years of the 20th century. Um, I think the first ballot measure was 1902 in Oregon. What was the ballot uh, measure out of curiosity? This seems like some great cocktail talk for the yeah, local yeah. government so, profession. You know, interestingly, Oregon was the state, not the first adopter. South Dakota was the first adopter of the process, but Oregon was the first state to really use it extensively. So it, uh, the initiative process was known initially as the Oregon system. Uh, over time, California has overtaken Oregon to be the state that has used uh, the initiative process the most, has passed the most statewide ballot measures. And 24 states out of 50 have uh, some form of this process. It's super uh, fascinating to see the, the variation between states, how they use it, um, how it's been used over time as well. There's a dip in the mid 20th century and then really uh, around the 1970s, especially with Prop 13 uh, in the late 1970s, uh, people demonstrated how powerful this process is and how it can be used to fun make fundamental change even in the face of strong institutional uh, opposition. So mm -hmm. both houses of the legislature, the governor against you, the media is against you, but you've got public opinion on your side. You can be a guy like Howard Jarvis and drop in an initiative and the people like it, they'll pass it, right? And that's that's a powerful thing to be able to sort of bypass all of the institutional checks of government with the exception of the courts, which is partly what the analysis was about. Um, uh, and make significant policy change. So that was like my my area of interest sort of coming out of graduate school in my first years as a faculty member. Um, the, the, the second um, single author book that I did was um, about three years ago it came out. It's called Texas versus California. And that arose out of my uh, long-term interest in the state of California. Uh, I've taught, I've, I've studied, written about, taught about California politics for a couple of decades now. And I observed over time that California went from a competitive two-party state. So when I first started teaching at Claremont, uh, Pete Wilson was governor. There was a Republican governor. There was a, there was a <clears throat> actually, no, when, when I started teaching, when I was in graduate school, Pete Wilson was governor. When I started at CMC, Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor. So we had uh, a lot of Republican governors. There was actually two-party competition in the state. And over time, um, the, the state has changed, as everybody knows, significantly. So it's, it's basically a, a one-party dominated state. And so that's happened in a lot of places around the United States, states becoming less comp internally competitive between the two parties and sort of gravitating toward one side or the other. So the, the, the thing that became of interest to me was comparing California as a deep blue state with uh, it's the second most populous state in the country, Texas, which over time became a deep red state. And so that's that's the origins of the book. How did that happen? This polarization of states into either Democratic or Republican, and what is the implications for policy? And the, the, the take home there is that if you've got a one party dominated state, 
unlike what's going on in Washington, D.C. over the last generation where the two parties have uh, basically equal power share and the ability to block each other and sort of create gridlock. At the state level, where one party dominates, then you've got the ability of one party in California, the Democratic Party, to basically enact a comprehensive agenda. And in Texas, it's been a comprehensive conservative agenda. So that's the the, the book explores uh, that fascinating dynamic at the state level in the United States. And in some ways, the competition at the federal level and the ability to, for each other to block. I mean, you know, I'm not sure there's a lot of people who would look at the federal government over the last 30 years and say, it's been awesome. I'm so glad it has two-party competition. Um, uh, but having, you know, ignoring that, no. I, I would um, – it's interesting to look at that lens saying, well, what if they'd actually been successful in doing what they wanted to get done, right? What is the outcome of that? Which I assume is partly what you explore in the book. So now we have an example of 10 plus years of, of uh, uh, Democrat domination in California. And I assume a similar general domination in Texas on the Republican side and seeing how that's evolved the policies and their associated economics and quality of life factors and things like that. Yeah, so there, there are examples in American history where one party is dominated uh, at the federal level. And during the Great Depression, the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt was able to lay out sort of a, a comprehensive agenda during the 1960s, the Great Society. Um, somewhat conversely, but not at nearly the same level when Reagan was president, he had a, a sort of a governing conservative majority in Congress. Um, and so we, we have seen examples where the federal government is able to move significantly one direction or the other. But in recent decades, with a, a few exceptions, like uh, President Obama in his first two years in office had working majorities in the, in the Congress, was able to get Obamacare through. But for most of his presidency, really stymied. Uh, and that was true for, for Bush and for Trump and as well, uh, you know, interesting to see that Biden has been able to get some things through Congress in his first two years, but now with the House um, controlled by Republicans, he'll be stymied as well. Yeah. Uh, so um, did you foresee that Florida would become perhaps even more of the antithesis to California than uh, Texas? Now, so that's super fascinating. I get I get media inquiries about this pretty often. Um, I did. There was a long article in the L.A. Times recently uh, as uh, with with the thesis that that Florida is now the real foil for California more so than <laughs> than Texas, I th my view of that is that's largely a product of one human being, which is Ron DeSantis, has converted uh, Florida into this kind of pugilistic uh, state that's got like a strong uh, conservative agenda, and it he really does see Florida as the counterpoint to. Uh, to California. And I think just his ability to elevate Florida in that way is impressive. Um, and I don't know if that will survive him as his governorship, if Florida will continue to be that kind of a, um, a rival to California. I think for the long term, Texas is going to be, uh, you know, it's, it's deeply entrenched in the politics of Texas that goes beyond Greg Abbott or any individual. The Texas is, is a rival, a conservative rival to California. Interesting. I, I sometimes think that uh, Governor DeSantis and Governor Newsom uh, maybe had a backroom conversation where they both agreed they should just pick on each other as much as possible to maintain a national profile so they're both well positioned to run for president. Whether it's this cycle or next cycle, I don't know. But sometimes you agree to be enemies in an aggressive way just to help each other out. They, they both benefit for sure from the <laughs> 
maybe it's that they come to an understanding. It's just a recognized <laughs> reality. Yes, right. Uh, that's interesting. Um, all right, and uh, I guess you get a chance to work with students a lot. So tell me what you see in the students you work with at the Rose and what, what that foreshadows for you. I mean, these are all people who theoretically are going to go off and hopefully make an impact in the world. I Obviously, I'm biased because I get to work with these students, and I used to be one of them. But um, what's that future look like, Ken? Yeah, so great question. Um, I mean, I see a sub uh subpopulation subculture of like the undergraduate student population in california the united states at, at claremont um, we are part of a consortium though where the other uh, schools in the, in the claremont colleges sort of uh, extend the range of, of the types of students i get to see i would say overall um our, our students today are more teched up they're more interested in uh technological major computer science and other sort of um tech-oriented uh, majors. They're, they're at Claremont very career-oriented and focused. That's always been the case at Claremont McKenna. Uh, but I, I would say that uh, at CMC, more so probably than some places, although you, you hear about the collapse of the liberal arts generally and the humanities uh, across universities and more um, orientation toward practically-oriented majors, we're already kind of situated in that space at Claremont. Um, and uh, in terms of like the, the political orientation, it, it does seem like our students today, uh, Claremont and generally, are pretty focused on social justice issues. Um, but at, in Claremont, at the Rose Institute also, that's sort of balanced off by uh, a practical orientation, uh, some skepticism of uh, too ambitious uh, political um, or government efforts to uh, address inequalities, um, sort of an economics-focused um, uh, skepticism, I, I would say. So that's what I see, uh, that our, our students are maybe, in a way, sort of soft libertarians, that mm -hmm. they're on, on social issues, progressive, on economic issues, um, somewhat more conservative. Interesting. Interesting. And where, I mean, these, these oh, when these kids are doing their summer internships. Where are they interning? What are they doing right now? So I'll speak to Rose Institute students. That's sort yes. of what I, know, I know best. Um, quite a few, well, some of them uh, go abroad. They get they take the opportunity to take a summer abroad and, and they get fellowships, internships to do that. Um, many of them uh, that I work with go to Washington, DC. They spend a summer on Capitol Hill and get that experience. Others of them are interested in uh, local and staying in California. Um, so we've had students who work in Sacramento or in local governments as well. Um, a lot of our students are ultimately interested in this sort of focus on tech in Silicon Valley. I think it's focused on tech and also sort of economic opportunities. Oh, yeah. uh, they, they see the ability to, at a pretty young age, do very well economically in, in the tech sector. And so that's a, a draw to them as well. And part of what we try to do at the Rose Institute is encourage students to consider public sector and not necessarily any public sector job, but sort of higher end management in the public sector space. So, um, and so we try to get internships in those um, those locations as well. And we've had a lot of support uh, in doing that. And we have, and I'll just note um, kind of a connecting line there, which is Scott Ochoa, who the best of my recollection actually did work at the Rose Institute when he was an undergrad student. That's right. Um, 
uh, and then went on to be a city manager in Monrovia and then Glendale and now in Ontario, is on the Board of Governors for the Rose, an alum of the college. Uh, and then Eric Figueroa, who is recently retired uh, city manager from the city of Martinez and was formerly with the League of California Cities as a regional director for, the, for them and was an assistant city manager in another city um, up here in Contra Costa County, um, is also on the board uh, of governors. So we have some really solid city manager connections. Uh, a couple other, actually, I think, uh, well, certainly some local other government, local government professionals that are on the board too, but it makes for a, a good mix of perspectives and great connections for the Rose students. Absolutely. And that's, that's one of the things I love about the board is that we have this mix of public and private sector uh, leaders. Uh, and so students get to see, you know, that mix um, one of the things I'll mention about the Rose Institute, one of the things I like best about it is uh, twice a year, we gather this group, our, our board together on campus and the students get to interact with them for a full day, um, doing student presentations, having meals together. Uh, so we also bring in the faculty and it's, it's the whole community coming together and the students really do get to see examples of leaders in both pu public and private sector and they can sort of cast a vision for what their future might hold. And I can say for the board, they just love to have a chance to see these young, bright minds uh, thinking about these policy issues and being open to feedback and ideas from uh, from the old folks that have the have the insights and wisdom to share with them. Right, right. Uh, Dr. Miller, you got anything else you, you want to highlight today about the Rose before I uh, let you skedaddle out of here? Well, I, I just want to say again, it's it's a it's been a real pleasure working with you as chair of the board and with our our board faculty students. This is this is really a special organization. It's it's nice to have this 50th anniversary this year to kind of step back and and be able to appreciate uh, what a what a, a great um, opportunity it is for all of us associated with the Rose Institute to be able to do that. And that's we we hope to be engaging some of the, uh, the the leaders out there in the community that we've been working with over the past 50 years to be part of this celebration as well. This is all gonna culminate in October uh, with a big on-campus event. And so, um, you know, we, we really do see ourselves as being part of the, the larger state and local government community in California. And so um, we wanna celebrate that as well. Phenomenal, I agree. It's gonna be a great party in the fall. I look forward to it. All right, that's today's report. My thanks to Dr. Ken Miller for joining us. From the whole public CEO team, myself, writer Todd Smith, thank you for your time. We hope you learned something new and inspiring that will help you in your public service. Remember, Public CEO has a daily newsletter that is free to those who sign up at publicceo.com. If you have feedback, questions, or guest suggestions for Public CEO Report, please email editor at publicceo.com.